turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be picking up there where uh, Ben had just finished off chapter 6. We're entering this new chapter, and I'll be talking about that in just a minute. But uh, you know, we were on vacation recently, and uh, a, a lady who was a server who had come to uh, talk to my kids during breakfast time uh, gave an admonition to one of my daughters. She said, you just be you. Don't let anybody tell you who to be. You be yourself. And I thought about that and how that really is a bit of wisdom that is common to our day today. And certainly, you know, th there is an aspect of people need to be able to be their own person, right? I've seen the opposite problem where uh, maybe kids aren't able to get out of the nest or, you know, the parents want to keep them too close to home, that kind of thing. Uh, but that's not really what people in our day today are talking about when they use these phrases. So what are some of those phrases that you might hear from time to time? Uh, you do you. Uh, YOLO, you only live once. Uh, what, what are some others? I, I'm sure there's more that I'm not thinking of. And, you know, the, the measure of good that is found in those phrases is quite different than how good was measured in generations past, right? The, the culture today means that there, the highest good is found in our own self-expression. And whereas in generations past, the highest good may be found in uh, your own moral character or in how you are of service to others or your community or your church or your family. And those statements like you do you and others like them, they're the mottos of our age. They're the water that we're swimming in. It's so thick, you get it all the time and people pick it up. And so this lady who was talking to us picked that up and she was repeating it. And uh, we don't even realize how it affects us. And I've run into people who maybe over the course of 10 years were changed by that line of thought because they had been receiving it for so much for so long that it fundamentally changed who they were. And it's in that context that you run into people. If you're ever going to be out and about and doing evangelism or just running to people in the public square... Uh, I, I know there's some people who have done you know, street evangelism here. And if you've done street evangelism before, how many of you run into somebody who says, judge not, lest you be judged? If there's one verse that people in our culture know, it's going to be, judge not, lest you be judged. They may have never picked up a Bible before, but they will at least know that one verse. And you could be talking to somebody, and, uh, you know, it's used like a pluralistic get-out-of-jail-free card, right? And then it sets up this stage uh, or this, um, this interchange where one person is like, you can't judge me. And then the other person says, no, it means make a righteous judgment. Well, I, I think there's a bit more to it than just that, and that's what we're going to be talking about this week because this passage has that phrase, judge not lest you be judged, in it. But we're coming into chapter 7, and 
Uh, this concludes the Sermon on the Mount in this chapter, and it contains a series of Jesus' sayings. And several of these sayings point to the gospel. Right? For example, the narrow and wide gate and the tree and its fruit and the houses built on the sand and the rock. Right? These are two ways sayings. Right? There's a way that leads to life, and there's a way that leads to death. There's a way that is in line with the, the will of God, and there's a way which is according to the world. And so as Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, he contrasts genuine and false faith using these statements, and that's where we're headed as we enter this passage. But this week, we have to deal with some things first. We have to deal with these topics of judgment, hypocrisy, humility, and integrity. And that sets the stage for the message of the kingdom that will be reinforced throughout the chapter. But first, we have to address this matter of judgment. Right? So what does it mean to judge? If you read along with me, if you've got your pew Bible, uh, it should be page 812. But just starting out chapter 7 of Matthew. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under feet and turn and attack you. Right, so as we go through this passage, I'm going to highlight some things. I'm going to highlight that integrity, humility, and the message that we proclaim, are they all matter. Okay, so first, let's talk about integrity from verses 1 and 2. Right, there, there's a few possible emphases when you use the word judge, meaning people may mean different things. Right, the, the first is to just weigh or consider something carefully. Right? You're, you're making a, a discernment. You're, you're deciding what, what's true and false and right and wrong. To offer judgment in light of facts. You know, another is to pronounce condemnation. Right? So which is in view in this passage? Right? Other passages in Scripture call Christians to be discerning, yet the prohibition here is, is on a critical judgment. It's not a prohibition against discerning right from wrong it lays out some parameters for how we approach ethical matters. But first, let's establish some context. Let's look at a few related verses that also speak into this discerning right from wrong. Okay? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Right? In the context of discipline, judgment is pronounced by the whole church. And we see that again in Matthew 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That where two or three together pray is actually in the context of this verse. It's the next verse, right? There I am in their midst. It's, it's whether you have made a judgment, right, of what is bound and what is loosed. So in both these passages, there's this context of accountability, 
and balance brought by the wider community. And there's value in the perspective that others bring into our lives. And we might be blind to what they see. And so we see that Christians are to be discerning, right from wrong. God is the one who ultimately will judge. And judgment is to be constructive, restorative. It's not retributive. And in light of that, I would add that it's best practiced in community. So what kind of judgment is in view here in Matthew 7? Let's reread verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. The measure we use will be used against us. Right? As we judge others, we also should know that we too will be judged. Right? This is talking about ultimately judgment from the Lord. But there's also a principle here in our own culture. That's why there's so much indignation in the culture when they see somebody who they think is being a hypocrite. People don't care about their own sin. But they do care when somebody claims to adhere to a standard and then doesn't live up to it. You will be judged. And we should avoid being dominated by a critical spirit. Right? The difference here is between aggressive criticism and someone who in humility seeking the Lord with integrity is able to call out sin. So the emphasis is not whether you can make a judgment but on the heart and attitude of the person who is making the judgment. The critical spirit comes from pride. Beware of your pride. You expect God to bless your endeavors born out of your pride? Right? This is more than a magnifying glass. Right on our own integrity. If, if you live by the sword, then you're going to die by the sword. Right? If you build a culture in your own life, in your family, or in your church, where severe judgment and critique rule, then it will not necessarily build a godly person, a godly family, or a godly church. In the end, it, it can create a destructive culture. So we do stand for truth, But if your life is characterized by criticism alone, then that's not going to yield the fruit of the Spirit. Taking a stand on truth can be necessary, but in and of itself, it's not godly fruit. It may take years, but your actions will impact you as a person. A life characterized by harsh criticism will leave an ugly and bitter person in the end. So if in a spirit of humility we're dealing with our own sin, then we're in a position to assist others in their restoration. There's a measure of wisdom here. Humility, self-examination, a teachable heart, and grace, they're all necessary to bring about godliness. And this is about your own personal integrity and character before the Lord. So... It's a heart attitude with which we approach a problem. 
The critical person places himself or herself above others. They feel important when they call others out. But the humble person wants to see Christ-likeness grow in the hearts of those people. And so the humble person examines himself or herself and seeks godliness in humility. And they are able to balance healthy self-examination with resting in Christ, knowing that we need the help of Christ in our own lives to grow in Christ-likeness. We need both. Right? And so there are some who attempt to justify bad behavior when countering sin. They say it's okay to act in a way that traditionally would be associated with the world as long as you're arguing for what's right. And in the end, people are picking the morality that they prefer when they're acting that way. They're willing to be crass and harsh, controlling, demanding, even vindictive. In other words, they lack humility. Why? So they can stress other moral imperatives. That's really, that's just being pragmatic. You're picking which morality you want to stress. It says it doesn't matter how we do something as long as we win. And the Lord wants more integrity from us than that. So in Scripture, we find that God seeks those who follow after his heart. And it's not just about results. It's also about who you are before God. And you may have heard a term in years past, a generous orthodoxy. Now that was used several years ago by some folks who were trying to move away from the historic Christian faith. They were trying to open the tent bigger and let some things in that hadn't been there before. But that's not what this passage is saying, right? Sometimes when the people are saying, don't judge, they're saying, you should, you should be allowing more things in the tent. That's not what the passage is saying. Instead, the passage is calling us to a generous personal humility and teachability in our hearts, right? It's not broadening what is acceptable, as if to say, you can't judge. Instead, it's calling for a deeply humble heart before the Lord that acts with integrity. And so, this holds the truth to an even higher regard while recognizing that we need the Spirit in our lives to help us in our weakness as we seek to follow the Lord. So it puts us in this position of dependence upon God. All right, let's continue verses 3 through 5, because humility matters. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus uses hyperbole there to make his point, just like he did earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, where the speck and the plank represent the magnitude of the sin in your life. And um, when we presume our own attainment while calling others to account, it says that that is hypocrisy. 
So I ask you these questions. How much time do you spend judging the sins of others? And how much time do you spend judging your own sin? When somebody is externally focused and characterized by a judgmental spirit, they often are missing some things in their own life. They're so fixated on the sins of others, they ignore their own sin. And when somebody is aggressive and attacking others, I think if you look at the situation, you're going to find an idol there. Right? The spirit of condemnation can actually nurture sin in your own hearts and become a cause of sin in our own lives. So it's like playing with fire. It projects strength, but it's actually full of pride. Some will point to righteous anger as an you know, example of being justified. Because it's for the Lord. And there is such a thing as righteous anger. That's true. But if your whole life is characterized by what you call righteous anger, then something else is going on here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10 for reference. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were... This is starting at the beginning of the chapter... Um, for that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate at the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, These things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as examples, but they are written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. In this passage, it's about idolatry, but putting something else in the place of God in your heart is idolatry. And that is a sin in itself. But it's also the source and the root of other sins expressed in our lives. Sin can be very subversive, very subtle. We see firsthand deliverance given by the Lord in that passage, and yet sin can twist and turn what is holy into something else. It can creep in where we do not expect. Outside, everything looks all right, and you can stand for truth, and even when we think we're doing right, 
there it is, right? If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. So, a humble heart is introspective. That means it evaluates itself. If, if you love scripture application that points to other people's sin, but you are bored by application that speaks into your situation, then something is wrong. How many times have I seen people who were the most willing to call others out themselves and they were not above reproach? Right? They do the same things that they accuse the other person of doing. And when you try to show that to them, they won't have it. And they may be doing the exact same things in a different context. Why will they not see it? Because they lack introspection and a teachable heart. Right? They're so far-sighted that they miss their own sin. And the humble posture of somebody who's introspective and willing to examine their own life will lead to a spiritual sensitivity and humility. Just briefly, Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, and what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I, I recently read a note from somebody online who was commenting on these verses and made a point about spiritual sweetness in old age. You meet people who are harsh and bitter in old age, and you meet people who have joy in old age. And the point that was being made was that this doesn't just happen overnight. Right? It's based on a lifetime of devotion to the Lord or a lifetime of criticism. Right? Contrast that with the aggressive posture of somebody who's always seeing issues and in their heart, over time, it turns to bitterness. Right? And in that bitterness, they find ways to blame others for their bitterness. It's a poison to our heart. Right? But a humble heart seeks clarity. Right? Some of the most critical people I've met were not willing to hear the inside of others in their lives. And they were not devotional readers of God's word. They knew enough scripture to quote it for their ends but they did not necessarily read it devotionally in application to their own life. They can point out Scripture and how those ideas from Scripture support their conclusions, but their personal devotion led them towards farsightedness. They use Scripture as a cudgel rather than a scalpel. Right? Instead... Let the scripture speak into your own life and seek understanding, right? That means we have to be listening, right? If we want clarity, we have to be listening to what the scripture actually is saying to us, not implying what we want into it. And we have to be willing to hear what others in our lives are speaking into our lives. A humble heart wants to do away with sin, right? I would... Propose this, when we focus on barbarians at the gate, you're concerned about an external threat, it can have a negative impact on your own character. Right? As you spend too little time rooting out that sin in your own life, 
And I'm not saying we ignore those external threats. What I am saying is that our own character is important before God. And character development should be guided by both God's word and the support of Christ's church. And we should lament sin that is both close and far. Right? So if you focus on one to the exclusion of the other, then something's wrong. A humble heart is teachable. Somebody who refuses to hear the words of others spoken into their lives will not grow. They'll be static. They will think that they have a lot to offer, but they will be stagnant in their growth. And that's pride. If you want to be a teacher in our equipped classes, if you want to be a teacher in our children's classes, then I'll encourage you, be willing to sit under the teaching of others. That's a prerequisite if you're going to be a teacher. You have to be willing to sit under the teaching of others and hear their teaching. So many people will only come if they're asked to teach. And this is not any one church. This is just church life in general. You see this all over the place. But a humble heart is a teachable heart. And how do you develop a teachable heart? Again, I'd say devotional study in God's word and applying it in your life with self-examination, with prayer, and also through lived-out service within the people in your lives or within the church. But be willing to listen when others point to things or when they give exhortations. And if you are going to see your own sin, then you're going to have to slow down a bit and pay attention to it. Pay attention to your own life and see the storyline of the gospel applied in the context of your own life. That's what a testimony is supposed to be, right? How, how Christ impacted you personally in your life, right? There, there should be some continuing cadence of that in your life as you go on as a Christian. We are sinners who need Christ and we turn to him for new life. And the gospel at its core should lead us towards humility. Right? Because we came to Christ in need of him. And we should live our lives in that humility. So when was the last time that a critical social media post led you to self-examination? Crickets. Okay. Yes. In our culture today, it's really easy for people just to pile on against one another. Right? The internet gives people on both sides of an issue the ability to do that. And in effect, you can escape to a side that agrees with you. Right? If you go back 50 years, 100 years, and if you were in the context of a local church, you weren't going to escape. You had to live with people who live down the street from you. You had to get along with people who sat next to the pew with you. Next to you in the pew. Right, so in effect, they can escape the insight of a local community, right, and go towards those who reinforce them. And that is not discernment. It just reinforces your biases. 
In light of 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18, correction is best practiced in the context of local community with people who actually know you in real life. Or you can find life-on-life discipleship and hopefully some balance. And yet, we've seen people flee to those who would reinforce their biases rather than being challenged to grow in character. And this happens on all sides. I'm not attacking one side or the other. This is just general. It happens all over the place. There's a polarization that is happening. All right. The message also matters. Let's look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy... Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Right? In the Jewish culture, dogs and pigs were wild animals. Pearls, on the other hand, were of great value. And what was holy was set apart for God. The pearls represented what was holy. And it had a holy use. You actually had three levels in, in that culture. You'll, you'll see it in Scripture. There was what was for normal use. And then there were things that were defiled. And then there was things set aside for holy use. And in this situation, you're bringing out something holy before something that's unclean. And in the the mind of a New Testament era Jew, that was something you did not do. You didn't take the holy thing and allow it to be um, trampled by what was unclean. That's a horrible way to treat the holy thing. And when you bring the holy thing before others and they dishonor it through their profanity, their scoffing, what should you do? It's made for holy use. It's not made to be trampled. Well, we we need to ask, what are these pearls? Some might say that it's the reproof from the past few verses. And certainly that may be the case. Others see a connection with food in relation to you're feeding dogs and pigs, so there's an element of food here, and then they make a connection to the Lord's Supper. And they're saying you, you don't bring the Lord's Supper between people who are unbelievers, and you hold it for, for the church so that others don't mock the gospel. Still others will see this as a specific warning to the period, to the Jews, to say, you know, don't take this message of the gospel to the Gentiles just yet because we haven't seen the cross of the resurrection yet. So this is one of those warnings of holding off the the full gospel message. Well, there's another view that uh, says that the most holy thing to the disciples would be the message of the kingdom of God. And I actually think that fits pretty well with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Um, And so some would focus on the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I would say there's two big contenders here. Is this just um, correction? You're correcting somebody on a matter of ethics, some moral issue. Or is this the gospel? Well, in the past few chapters, Jesus lays out a vision for what citizens of the kingdom are like. And he describes a way of life in light of Christ. And Jesus lays out a kingdom agenda in the Sermon on the Mount. And their mission is to be salt of the earth, a 
a preservative. Their new life has an ultimate end in mind, the restoration from the fall, carrying the message of the kingdom as they go. They are to be light in the world. And this kingdom message is of greatest value. So some argue that what is holy could be general. God is holy. He calls us to be holy, set apart for him. But even if that is the case, I think there's a strong argument that the, the, the most holy thing to the disciples, the most uh, set-apart thing for them would be the message of the kingdom. And so there's a central application here for Christians that the, the message and the good news of Jesus Christ, right, that the message of the coming kingdom and participation in his church, and elsewhere we see, you know, the parable of the pearl of great price pointing to the kingdom. Uh, so there may be a stock imagery kind of element to that. But there's uh, also a connection with uh, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, right? The, the message and the message lived out in new life. So I don't think you can divorce the new life lived out from the message itself either in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And so what does this mean for us? Having said all that, right? I gave a couple different, you know, views there. We hold the message of the kingdom with reverence. It's precious. We don't throw it around carelessly or act like it's of no value. We're called to bring the message of the kingdom of God to the world, but we're not obligated to continually subject it to scorn from scoffers. We're freely to offer the message like Paul, and like Paul, we can move on when somebody rejects that message. Not casting pearls before swine is actually similar to wiping the dust off your feet when somebody rejects the message and moving on. Some will not listen. And you continue to proclaim the kingdom, but you can put your time to good use elsewhere. If somebody refuses to hear, you don't have to continue to subject the message of the kingdom to ridicule from a scoffer. But as you interact, remember that there are still souls who need to hear the gospel. So do your best to bring them the good news. All right, so some will use this verse for their own ends. So just like that judge not lest you be judged, pearls before swine is another commonly known verse. And um, it is dealing with this subject of people who sharply disagree with one another. That's the whole idea of something holy and something unclean. There's a sharp disagreement here. And based on that, some will read into the verse that they don't have to resolve personal conflict. And I would say they're doing violence against the text when they do that. They're divorcing it from its context to justify their own ends. And this passage does not teach dismissing somebody offhand or justifying our bitterness or being unwilling to seek reconciliation in broken relationships. There are other passages that speak into that. And we could go to those, and we've actually preached on some of those in the last year, even in this congregation. But if you take that sort of view, then you're also in conflict, I would say, with verses 1 and 2. There there is a symmetry there between the first part of the section and this last verse. Right? The whole passage provides some balance. We're, we're not to come before somebody with a harsh judgment and without self-examination. That's verses 1 and 2. And yet, there is some level of discernment where we're not to come repeatedly before a scoffer who himself or herself lacks humility. And that's verse 6. 
So each verse speaks to humility. Humility in the one speaking in verses 1 and 2, and humility in the one hearing in verse 6. And so here's some, some pleas before God for us that as we seek to apply this in our own lives. Lord, give us personal humility. And Lord, give us teachable hearts. If you are characterized by humility, if you are teachable, then you will be sensitive to sin, both your own sin and the sins of others. And may that characterize who we are as a people together. Lord, give us personal integrity, right? Let us desire to follow God faithfully in our lives. Then let our integrity speak for itself and don't let our Christianity just be cultural. And don't let it be far-sighted moralism. Instead, let it characterize who you are in personal holiness and Christ-likeness. Lord, give us genuine discernment. Discernment means the ability to judge well. And may that be true of us. It's It's a travesty that the word discernment in certain circles has become synonymous with those who offer a harsh judgment without self-reflection and without even knowing the people that they're, they're commenting on or the situations that they're speaking into. Lord, help us to see how to speak into the lives of others in constructive and restorative ways. And help us to seek wholeness and enable those around us to flourish in their lives. And help us to use verses like this rightly in a world that reads their own meaning into the text. And help us to build a healthy community growing together in Christ-likeness. And so, also, Lord, give us a zeal for the message of the kingdom. Give us a a desire for holiness, but also help us to see the immeasurable worth of Christ and holding that message of the gospel as holy and good. Help people to see the goodness of following God's ways as we seek humility and Christ-likeness in our own lives. And help us to use our time wisely. Right, And we may see our own personal testimonies in light of how Jesus Christ has worked within each of us. As sinners, we come to him for help. And we live in humility knowing that our own life is hidden with Christ and God. Right? In union with him. And in light of new life in Christ, the message of the kingdom is precious in our sight. And may that shape our judgment. May that shape our integrity and humility before the Lord. 